You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Do you sometimes feel stuck when it comes to actually acting on your values? If so, you aren't alone. I think we hear a lot about living our values as yoga teachers, but there isn't a ton of practical information about how to actually do it. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is a dive into some practical considerations about what it looks like to live your values on a day-to-day basis so that you can teach from an integrated lived experience of yoga. My guest, Rach Junard, is a digital fundraising expert, yoga and philosophy student and instructor, and a DEI strategist. They aim to cultivate an abundant and supportive community environment for those who want to learn about, reflect on, and practice community accountability. I hope this conversation inspires you and also gives you some practical ideas for how you can live your values on a day-to-day basis. Let's jump right into the conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Rach, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, excited to be here. Let's start by hearing a little bit about your journey, how you discovered yoga, and why you decided to become a teacher. Oh, I love this question. Um, I, I'm sure you probably hear this a lot, but I feel like for me, yoga has absolutely changed my life. Um, I would not be who I am today if I was not for discovering yoga and not just, again, the asana practice, but all of the physical, spiritual, mental practices that come with it as well. Um, My first ever yoga class was at a Bikram studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, That's where I grew up. I think I was, I was 17 (laughs) and it was super hot. If you know anything about Nashville in June, it is super hot, super humid. And for some reason, I thought it'd be a great idea to try a Bikram yoga class then. Um, but I'm glad I did. I did the 30 days for $30 Groupon deal. I went back continuously. And after that deal expired, um, I was, I found a lot of great uh, inspiration and videos on YouTube. Cause of course it's free, cheap, easy, accessible for my own home. Um, and then that following the next four years kind of just did the same thing of doing Groupon deals. Um, cause I was in college didn't really have a lot of money. <laughs> so wanted to find the best way possible for me to um, continue this practice and see what I can find out of it um, and see where it would take me. I did end up taking my senior year of college, a yoga class because I needed a gym credit, um, which is weird that you need a gym credit for undergrad. <laughs> but I did that anyway. And it was funny because even in that particular practice, I found myself like really struggling really struggling with the physical, really struggling with sitting and just taking time for some breath work. It was only 60 minutes a week, but I found a really hard time committing to that. Um, And I really didn't solidify my yoga practice until I moved to Boston in 2016 in May. Um, And I, this is something that a lot of people don't really talk about, I think openly, but um, 
I was, I was very lonely after graduating undergrad. I moved to a city where I knew no one and I started a new job. It was very stressful at the time. And I wanted to find something that was, I wanted to have something that was constant. Um, and unfortunately, as we all know, like yoga can be very expensive. So I ended up doing kind of like a work study with this yoga studio that I found where I would just clean the studio once a week and uh, for a discounted membership. And that was the way I was able to kind of afford that. I was going consistently every day because outside of work, I didn't really have anything to do. Didn't really have any friends, right? Uh, that I could meet up with in person anyway. Um, so that was kind of how I fell into a more deeper practice, uh, which then led me to sign up for my first 200 hour uh, teacher training uh, with the studio. And I, in that process, it was pretty accelerated. It was with Core Power Yoga. Um, and it was pretty accelerated. If anyone knows anything about that, it's about eight weeks and you meet three times a week for three hours and you're expected to like practice essentially every day, sometimes twice a day. <laughs> so it was a lot. It was like an accelerated 200 hour. And within that, I definitely fell really hard for the asana, right? Cause that was their main focus. Once I finished that training, I still felt like something was missing um, so I took it upon myself to really dive deep into some more yoga philosophy texts, getting into uh, trying to incorporate this into my daily life of, okay, what would, a, what would a daily sadhana look like, right? Like, what can I dedicate 10, 20 minutes to? Um, and I didn't really know at the time when I was going through teacher training that I wanted to um, teach at the end of it, or I wanted to like, create what I have created at the end of it, but I just knew there was a certain calling that I've always kind of felt like this particular conduit for folks to come to me and to share my expertise. So I wanted to see what it would look like for me to kind of take the seat of a teacher as well as a student because it's always constantly evolving. Um, so going through my first training really kind of propelled me into this new philosophy where yoga is not just a 60 minute mat practice. It is a full 360 holistic lifestyle. Um, and I'm so grateful to incorporate it um, also with my own experience with my Nigerian roots, with my ancestral ancestral practices um, and within my own community. A lot of folks come to me, especially now <laughs> being in COVID and um, staying at home, wondering like, okay, well, what kind of breath work can you um, help me out with? Cause I'm just really stressed. I'm really anxious with work um, and also with the physical part of it to letting them know that you don't need to, you know, get on downward facing dog every single day. Like here's some really simple stretches you can do at your desk. Cause I know we all know what, how that feels like as well. Um, but it's been a really wonderful journey to start as just truly someone who is inquisitive about the process, just wanting to see what it looked like. Um, and then make my way into being a teacher, continuing in my education, I have now completed my 300 hour training with uh, Susanna Barkataki this past, last year, excuse me. Um, so that has been really just fun <laughs> and also finding other ways to continue my education and um, what can yoga look like for me and most importantly, my community. That's really big for me. What does your personal practice look like now? Mm, um, it definitely has fluctuated, I think, in the past year. Uh, I would say it's been consistent the last month or so. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only yoga teacher that feels this way, um, but it can be hard to practice in just a virtual space. Um, so for me, 
I have committed to kind of taking classes once or twice a week from other yoga studios, yoga studios and yoga teachers that I really like. Um, and then, like I mentioned in the beginning, um, dedicating myself to a daily sadhana practice. So uh, waking up in the morning, drinking a glass of water, going to my altar, um, taking some time in silence, whether that's one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, also, if I feel called to it, drawing a tarot card. And then some days after that, I do go into a physical asana practice. So sometimes it's really just like five minutes and sometimes it is 60 minutes. It really just depends on what I need. Um, but not beating myself up about what are Western ideals of what my yoga practice sh should look like versus what I need my yoga practice to look like. Um, and a lot of it also boils down to um, asking and checking in with my community. What support do they need? What support can I get from them? I also consider that my daily yoga practice as well. Tell me a little bit more about this silent time that you cultivate for yourself, because I think it's a big challenge for a lot of people, especially in the modern world where we have the ability to have input all the time, input all the time. And it's like, we rarely take the time to be silent. And when we do, it's often pretty uncomfortable. So I would love to hear from you, like, why have you built this silent time into your sadhana and what is it like for you? I think when I first started my yoga practice, um, someone told me that the hardest pose ever was Shavasana. And I was just like, what are you talking about? After a really hard practice, the, that's the best part. I get to lay down <laughs> and just feel everything soak up and let that feel good. Um, but especially now with uh, just being at home and only really seeing one other person, it definitely has been a grueling kind of practice of okay, yeah, I have to really sit with what I didn't really want to look at ahead of time or previously, right? So really sitting with the, with the ideals of uh, that inner shadow work that comes up, those questions that I'm still kind of afraid to hold a mirror up to um, because it may reveal something in me that I'm not ready to go through that process yet, right? Um, so that's been really big for me. Some days it's really, um, some days it's easy. Sometimes it's really hard. And those are the times when I know when I wake up, I'm like, I don't really want to do this today. But those are the days I'm like, you have to actually do this today. You know? Yeah. How do you get yourself to do it on those days where part of you is really wanting to avoid it because you know that there's something uncomfortable there? Um, it kind of reminds me of like therapy when I have really tough days and I don't really feel like signing on to chat with my therapist. <laughs> and it's in that process where I have to ask myself, what are you hiding from? Like, what are you not wanting to deal with right now? Because the, the thing with our practice, whether it's spiritual work, grief work, even joy work, um, you really kind of have to ask yourself, you have, you have to go through things, right, to understand the outcome. Um, it's never something I, I can bypass. Uh, so eventually this will show up for me later. It's almost like if we're thinking about um, water uh, and sitting in a bowl, it's going to get stagnant. If you just let it sit there, you kind of have to nourish it, replenish it, um, and also nurture yourself with it, allow yourself to be replenished with that water. So if I don't deal with it, it's going to come back later and it might actually be worse. <laughs> so that's something I definitely have to think about. So you basically have this conversation with yourself where you're like, listen, Rach, if you don't deal with this now, 
you're going to have to deal with it later and it's probably going to be harder later. So just look at it now. Oh, basically. And it's like a self-awareness that I didn't have four or five, six years ago, right? Because there were so many options and signs telling me that everything is perfect. Look at this person on Instagram. Look at how they look. They got everything sorted out. So you should have it this way too. So for me to admit that anything is wrong or that I need to work through something, it almost seems like a failure, right? Um, But that's not true. It's actually humbling for me to go through this process and to meet different iterations of myself every single time I go through a process. That makes a lot of sense. And you know what it reminds me of is Resma Menachem, the way that he put this concept of clean pain versus dirty pain. And when I read that, when I read his book, I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And now I have some language to help me face the clean pain because if I don't, it turns dirty. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, it was such a, it's such a great analogy, honestly, because that's exactly what that is. It's a great analogy and it, it's a good reminder, especially on the hard days, for sure. On your website, you describe your work using the term community accountability. And I'd love to hear you describe in more detail what that means to you and why it's so important. I consider myself a student of transformative justice and restorative justice. Um, And within those two different ideologies, there's this one core tenet of community accountability. Um, And so to be held accountable, you you want to be held accountable, right? You have to buy into that process. Um, So if I mess up or I'm seeking help, I want my community to lovingly call me in. It will never be a call out. And in fact, when they do call me in, that's a blessing. It's great to have people who want to hold me accountable to support me as I transform from one iteration to the next. Um, And I truly believe that you can't really do anything on your own. Like we have communities for a reason, whether that is your neighborhood, your um, digital community, even from like childhood, if you went to school, things like that. Those are all people I consider part of my community. Um, And I want them to look up to me as much as I look up to them, right? It's never gonna be putting anyone on a pedestal. It's more so I see all of us as equal. We all have an equal hand in uh, creating a sustainable um, and equitable world. Um, So how can we do that together? Uh, What I create is something that for me isn't, like this isn't me saying this is the one end all be all philosophy, right? <laughs> it's an idea I have. I want to cultivate that in community. I want to see what that looks like. Can we make it happen? Can we make it work in a way again that is inclusive and equitable? Um, that gets other other folks buy in. It's not just mine. Um, but I really I really consider that um, a huge core tenet for me of community accountability. And also if I say I'm, I want to do X. So let's say I really wanna work on inner child uh, work this year. And I said that to my community <laughs> and they see me doing the opposite, right? Avoiding that clean or dirty pain or not going through that clean or dirty pain. Um, then I want them to hold me and I want them to hold me accountable um, because I, I'm not gonna heal on my own. There are certain things I'm going to go through a certain process of sitting in my altar and maybe crying my eyes out alone. Um, But then to reflect on that and grow from that, that will be done in community. And I encourage folks to always come to me as well within my community with that. That's really beautiful. There's one thread from there that I wanted to pull out and 
inspect in a little bit more detail and just really emphasize because one of the things I was hearing you say was almost that being called in, being held accountable is a sign of respect. And so that even though at first glance, it might feel hurtful or it might feel like, oh, you don't understand me. <laughs> you don't understand, you know, the full picture of it to recognize that somebody taking the time to say, hey, look at this perspective means that they are, that they care about you and that they believe that you might be open and receptive to their message. That's kind of a huge, beautiful thing. And so I think one of the, as a human, just as any human being is going to have an instinct of feeling hurt when they get called out, like at least a little part of themselves, right? Of course. Yeah. That's the ego. Mm Mm-hmm like you were saying about like perfection and how we need to present some front or we need to present ourselves as being together and we want to be respected and all of this, which is completely normal. Yet we know that we're not going to live perfectly. We know that we have flaws. We know that we all have room to grow. And still in those moments of having somebody point out (laughs) something that we did or some potential that we're not hitting, we have this, this moment of being like, and I kind of relates to what you were saying about inner child work, right? It's like our child comes out. Yeah. And what we need to do is we need to tap into not just our child, but also our wiser self, our prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex, our, our wisdom body. And to say, oh, I see you, child. I see your hurt and your pain, and that's fine. You, you can feel that way. But also listen to the respect that this person is offering you. Listen to the gift this person is offering you. And one of the things that has been really helpful for me as a perspective is instead of trying to like imagine that anytime somebody offers you input or insight that they're 100% right or 100% wrong, to ask yourself, what percent are they getting right here? Mm. Do they have like a 20% point here? Is it an 80% point? Because the world is so complex, it's very rarely one way or another. And if we are in that kind of binary thinking, then what happens is that we negate wisdom and input and insight that could be really helpful to us because it's like 10% wrong, (laughs) you know, like you didn't get the full picture. Yeah. I think it's, it's like, it's a spectrum, right? Like I think in the little uh, knowledge that I have about Buddhist practices, two truths can be the same. Like I am the happiest I've ever been, but I'm also dealing with mental health uh, issues right now, right? Like that's super real. Um, So with that in mind, if someone is coming to you and saying, hey, this is what you said and it kind of hurt me or this is what you did and it wasn't really in line with our values. Let's talk about that. Of course, your first instinct might be to like, as you said, like really feel like attacked in some way or feel kind of hurt, Um, but bring it on, right? Like I want people to call me and I want people to hold me accountable because again, it is a sign of not only respect, but a sign of love to know that people care about you. That that's ultimate, like that's ultimate. <laughs> so to, to bring that in, um, is amazing, is amazing. And to know that there is a spectrum of, uh, I don't want to say there's spectrum of truth necessarily, but there's a spectrum of like how 
you can receive information, how you can grow from information and how you can evolve. Um, and that it's not ever going to be an, a linear path. Like our, because we are human, we are, we are susceptible to failure. We are susceptible to harm. But that also means on the flip side of that, there's growth, there's love, there's respect, there's a foundation that we build off of and grow from. Um, and that's beautiful. Like, I think you have to look at it in a, in a uh, 360 view and not just this linear path that it's A, B, C, D, E, right? It's so many things. It's so many things. Um, I, yeah, I think that's lovely. I think we learned that from so many things, but for me in particular, learning that from my practice, how when I first started, I thought I was really strong. And for the past year, I've been dealing with a wrist injury that has really forced me to like par down and really modify. And what I thought was strong, right, is now a different version of that. There's resilience and strength in my practice deeper than at what it was four years ago. And that's amazing. That's amazing. I love that. Absolutely. And it's so interesting how when you are working around an injury, you have the opportunity to find places you've been avoiding physically, because it's just like we tend to avoid emotions and thought processes that are uncomfortable. We also avoid physical patterns that are not within our natural strengths, right? So when we first start doing yoga, we tend towards the poses that we're good at. And then we work on those and we get even better at them. And then when they're taken out of our practice from an injury and we're learning to modify and adapt, all of a sudden we get this new experience of strength in our bodies. Yeah. Precisely. I absolutely love that analogy. That was very, very good. I realized with my wrist injury, I was like, I was avoiding doing like core and lower back work to help me support anything else. Um, so that has definitely been a fun journey. I'm not going to say challenge. It's been a fun journey and a fun process for me to learn more about myself too. And like how I carry things both physically, emotionally, and mentally. I love that. I want to hear a little bit more about the community accountability. Specifically, do you have any structures that you teach around this? When it could be from either direction, right? If you, if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I've got something to say to you. I, I want to share something with you. What advice do you have for people listening to put themselves in a space where they can really be receptive to hear the lesson. And then also if you have a friend or a coworker or even an acquaintance that you respect, that you recognize that they have a blind spot and you maybe feel a responsibility to offer some thoughts, some insights and perspective on that. What are your, what's your advice on how to approach these two angles? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I actually went through this a little bit today. Um, but I think for me, it really boils down to like values and boundary work. So if my values are aligned with X, then I know how I'm going to approach a certain person about not just, I'm not even going to say like a mistake they made, but just like a misstep, right? Um, and same thing for boundaries. So this is why I think it's so important to stress daily sadhana practice. So like a, just a ritual for you to get prepared for whatever may come your way. I don't know what's going to happen when I wake up tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to happen two hours from now, but because I set myself up for success today to kind of, um, create that container of being open, being receptive, but also knowing that my boundaries are strong. So if 
for instance, my partner comes to me right now and is like, Hey, I have to talk to you about something serious. My next question is if I'm not ready to receive it in that moment, I'll say, okay, great. Can you give me a headline of what you want to talk to me about? And can we talk about it in 30 minutes when I've had time to process? Like I'm, I feel set up and ready for that. Cause you absolutely have the authority to determine when you can hear that feedback, right? Um, especially if you are a person that when someone tells you, sends you a text that just says, I need to talk to you, that can be so anxiety inducing. <laughs> and I totally understand that, right? Um, so set your own boundaries with that. Um, and then on the flip side of that, when I have these conversations with folks where I'm lovingly calling them in or stating, hey, this kind of goes against the grain of what we had set out to do, I state that, right? Like I, I kind of almost need to say that out loud for myself to affirm that this is the experience that is happening. This is the impact it's having on me, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And this is what I would like to change. Um, and knowing that, again, none of this can be done on my own. I need that other person or persons, right? To kind of help me with this structure to make sure that we get back into an aligned place that we all feel comfortable with. Um, because it's, not, it's never going to be just about me. Um, though I may hold marginalized identities, I always want to make sure whatever we're doing continues to uplift everyone at the margins. So it can never con come from just my own perspective. I'm doing this for others like myself um, and others that hold other marginalized identities as well that may not be represented. Thank you. Next question, I want to turn the lens onto teacher trainings. And I know you've taken a few of them and you've probably had conversations with other people who've taken other one, other teacher trainings. So you kind of have a little bit of a sense of what they're like in general. And you've taken some very, some very different ones, right? The Core Power yeah. and Susanna Barkatakis. I think those are almost polar opposites. Um, oh, to say, yeah. <laughs> If you could, if you could wave a magic wand and influence yoga teacher trainings around the globe, what would be your top priority? I think I would prioritize um, length over speed. Um, so, in transformative justice, there's this phrase of um, you the pro trust the process, and the process will become trustworthy. So knowing that this is not going to be a one-way ticket for you to be a teacher ultimately in 80 days and like rack up all these things, right? So managing expectations around what is the purpose of a yoga teacher training and really at its core, it should be about you. It should be about you and your relationship to yoga and relationship importantly to self. Um, and then from there, building upon it, really respecting the history that it is the philosophy that it comes from, what what uh, phases it's gone through to, to now, right? Um, and what is true, right? Not only what is right, but what is true. Uh, so I think that to me is so important. Um, with Susanna's training, it was about eight months or so. Um, and that's like, I think that's like medium, right? That's like typical amount of time for yoga teacher training. For core power, for it to be two months, I was very much like, <laughs> I never would wish this on anybody. I definitely needed more time. And I got that, you know, through my own self-study. Um, but I, I would love for it to be 
self-inquiry at every corner. Yes, maybe it's a year-long program and we meet monthly, but there are touch points for you to really have those deep dives for yourself to commit to your daily practice, whether that's meditation, asana, community work, right? Because that's also a huge thing. We always have to give back. What are we doing daily that is non-harming? We talk about HIMSA a lot right now. Um, how can we incorporate yoga sutras into the practice from day one and weave that in throughout the practice as well as after when you've completed the training? Um, that would be magic wand for me. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. And I really love that you had that experience of the short compressed training and the longer training and have come out of it, recognizing the importance of patience as somebody who has been in this world for, you know, I've been teaching for like 18 years and I still know that there's so much for me to learn. And I, it's like the longer I teach, the less of, I feel like an authority <laughs> about yeah. it. Yeah, um, but yeah. I also see this hurry that people are in, especially people who want to become a yoga teacher quickly, like you said, or they have just graduated and just started teaching and they want to become competent quickly. Totally understand that. That makes complete sense to me. I can relate. I can hardly remember what it was like to be a new teacher, but I can definitely relate to that kind of urge that nobody wants to be a beginner anymore. And even I think our students don't want to be beginners. And I think that's a shame. I, you know, you mentioned Buddhism earlier, and I think one of the one of the beautiful emphasis of of Buddhism is that beginner's mind emphasis. That yeah. you know what we're never we're actually never an expert. <laughs> no, and I say that all the time, and I I don't even think I understood that sentiment really until like a year into teaching, where I was like, wait, I'm still actually so much of a student more so than I am a yoga teacher. Um, and really even shifting that language to be more of like just an educator, um, because I think there's so much authority that comes with the word teacher, right? Um, and that's fine. Like, that's totally fine. But I think, yeah, I would, I would take yoga student over teacher like any, any day for sure. I do think we need to identify as students in order yeah. to be good teachers. Oh, totally. I totally agree. I also love that you emphasize the history and the philosophy. It's so fascinating and so complex. It does, I think, get glossed over in this litany of asana and alignment that can be really compelling because I think it's easier to picture and organize. And so we like things that our brains can wrap around, whereas the like the, the history and the philosophy of yoga, frankly, is incredibly complex. And you have to be comfortable in this kind of not knowing space in order to approach it. Definitely, definitely. I think people are, there's this quote, I'm not sure who said it, but um, we fear what we don't know. So if you walk into this process and it's not completely laid out for you, of course, you're going to be hesitant. And I totally under and uh, understand and align with that because I'm definitely that person who would describe myself as I need to continue to evolve. I need to get that certification, this certification, take that training. And really, it's like, what do I already know that I can just offer where I'm at <laughs> and and be OK with saying, this is who I am version one. 
next year I may be version three by this point, right? And that's totally cool. In fact, I want to be many versions of myself with many uh, like textbooks of knowledge within me. I, I love to be that forever student. I'm constantly interested in what else I can learn to incorporate into my life. Um, I've always had this fear of going back to school because I, I hate getting tested, <laughs> but, but I love learning and I love writing about it. And that's something to me, I'm like, that would be, a, this is why yoga trainings are probably better for me <laughs> because I can just take the training and I am just learning. It is a lot of self-inquiry and there is no grade at the end of it. Um, so that's probably why I'm so drawn to this aspect of yoga philosophy as well. Mm, yeah, that makes complete sense. I also wanted to circle back to a concept that you brought up a little bit ago, which is the concept of truth. And this is such a, wow, such a big topic. <laughs> we could probably yeah. <laughs> have like 10, 10 one hour long podcast episodes about it. But in a nutshell, when you said finding out what is true, how do you do that? How do you find out what is true? I think it's a perspective shift. Um, I think a lot of times I'm looking at something, so I'm so close to something, like it's right in front of my face. Um, so to me, that looks like that, that is my truth, right? So when I zoom out, theoretically speaking, I'm able to actually see what is actually true, not just from my perspective, but knowing that there are many perspectives now involved um, and what's the reality of it, right? Like what's actually happening? Because my truth right now could be that in front of me, I see the color red, but that's not your truth, right? So I need to actually zoom out and see like, oh, oh, there are actually many colors involved in this. Um, yeah. So I think for me, it really lays into a perspective shift and being open to, like I mentioned before, that kind of spectrum of knowing that there's going to be many different iterations of not only yourself, but of things, right? As we grow, as we evolve, as more knowledge is presented to us. Um, and it's, it's also kind of like a humbling experience. And it puts me back into that seat of just like being a child again and being a sponge and soaking up all these perspectives. Um, and never to be, if someone tells me this is their truth, I never want it to be a, a moment where I am shamed into action. I want it to be presented to me as, hey, here's this information. This is what I think about it. Let me know if you think the same. It never should, I never want to come to a situation or into a room and be like, you should do this because I said so, because I am this person and I hold these identities and that's what it is. I really want it to come from a, a place of understanding that you have been presented this information and now you've downloaded it, you are embodying it, and now you are moving from that place. Because it's so easy for me to sit here and tell you why you should recycle, right? <laughs> but you don't, maybe you don't know the impact of that. And I really need you to understand that impact for you to actually then be moved into action, not be shamed into action. So that, that really for me is what is the truth? What is the truth for you to then move yourself into action? So it's really interesting. I love how you talk about zooming out and seeing in the bigger perspective. And one thing that I think happens sometimes when we do that is the tendency to get overwhelmed, right? If we're used to seeing a narrow slice, we zoom out and we say, see, wow, this is incredibly complex. 
And so in that way, I sometimes think that an attachment to knowing the truth, uh, to understanding the truth actually holds us back because we zoom out, we get overwhelmed and we're like, well, the truth can't be overwhelming. So I need to zoom back in because then I feel like I actually know the truth. If instead, if we become committed to zooming out and saying, okay, I'm going to stay zoomed out for a bit. Like I can't live always zoomed out, but I'm going to stay zoomed out and I'm going to get comfortable not understanding the complexity here for a while and let the patterns emerge slowly. That if the truth, I cannot hurry or rush the truth. I cannot force myself into a place where I understand these patterns. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, I love that because it also speaks to almost like comfort zones as well, where you are so comfortable in this particular sphere or this perspective. So why would you want even to be open to change or knowing what others are saying about it if presented with new information? Um, yeah, I love that a lot because there's always going to be a certain point, certain seasons, especially that come in your life where it requires you to actually ask and question everything, right? <laughs> and as you should, like you should question things just because it, it says it's so, is it really so? I'm curious. I want to come, I want to look at it from an inquisitive perspective. That's all respectful, right? Um, and we're talking about certain things like identity and whatnot. Yeah, I, I really think that the willingness to be uncomfortable is kind of one of the key skill sets for this new age. And I think a lot of harm is caused by the desire to be comfortable. Definitely. I, I totally agree. Um, I, so my day job, I'm a DEI strategist, a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist. And one of my clients had mentioned something about how they don't really need to know why their employees are taking off for work. Like that's why they have their um, unlimited pay time off policy. And I was like, well, actually, no, you should care. You should care because some people are only ever going to take off for just doctor's appointments. And then they're, they're going to be other people that will take off for doctor's appointments and vacation. It's good to know, like you should, you should want to care. You should want to kind of get into that sphere of um, how you can help people and like get a little bit, um, outside of being comfortable of like just the status quo, right? Um, question that, question that. And I think we see this a lot when it comes to, to this work of inclusion, especially within wellness. If no one's really saying anything, that's a part of the majority. Why should we change it? Why should we even think to do like a self-inquiry of, are we still doing things okay? Like, should we change certain things? Should we change our ethos, our values? Should we reevaluate them? And the answer is always yes. Like you should always think about your values and see if they need to change every few years. And I ask myself that question often. I'm like, is this still aligned with who I am? And if it's not, what needs to change to make it true, right? Like that truth again, that comes up constantly for me. Exactly. And I think that's one of the benefits of taking on an identity like yoga teacher, because there's really this opportunity to check in with your values on a regular basis and to keep measuring your behavior against your values because I think that that is the measure of a life well lived. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So as we wrap up, I would love to hear, is there anything that I haven't asked you about yet that you want to share today or anything that we did talk about that you want to emphasize? Um, 
No, I think you covered everything. I really have enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, I think you covered everything. Beautiful. Well, as listeners and want to find out more about you, where should they look? Um, definitely check out my Instagram. It is rachdoes.yoga. Um, and please check out my website, rachdoesyoga.com. Uh, I have access to a monthly uh, portal. It's not necessarily a membership. It's just something where I can dump all of my like learnings and resources in a more accessible way for me. So I'm not constantly churning stuff out. Um, so within that, every month, I always like to provide just a short asana practice, a meditation practice, spiritual activism resources, as I like to call them, um, and then just ways to get involved within your own community. Uh, this is really important to me, as I mentioned, with my daily sadhana practice. So I love to extend that to folks as much as I can in the most accessible way that I can. Thank you, Rach. This has been such a great conversation. So much food for thought. I really have appreciated having you on here. Yeah, thank you so much. As we wrap up this episode, let's do a practice check-in. You might be feeling inspired by Rach's description of their daily satna. I'm curious if you already weave in time for silence in your own practice. We could call this meditation or inner listening. I find for myself, it's the part I'm most likely to skip. But I also know it's essential for my mental and emotional health. During silent time, all kinds of things can come up. I think about it as getting current with my own emotional state. Like Rachel and I talked about earlier, it's about zooming out and letting things be messy, confusing, or even downright overwhelming without trying to fix or even understand it to hold myself in compassion exactly as I am in the moment. It's a revolutionary act of self-care. The most healing and important part of this is that it happens alone. I don't need anyone else to initiate, guide, or witness it. Now, that's not to say that I don't also need support from other people, but I think it's important to have something that I do entirely alone designed to hold space for myself, to almost parent myself. So my invitation this week is to check in with your current practice and ask yourself, is there anything you'd like to add or any way you currently feel inspired to change or evolve the way that you have been showing up for yourself? That's all for today. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.